Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words, so listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. Hello and welcome again to A Million Other Choices. I am your host, Kim. Today I have another terrible story for you. It just reminds me a lot of Taylor's own story, so it was kind of a tough one for me. This is the murder of Sarah Ray. Sarah Nicole Ray was born on September 2nd, 1983 in Calgary. Her parents, Pearl and Gord, doted on her as their only child. She grew up to be particularly close to her dad, Gord. Uh, Gord was an adventurer and a big traveler, but after he met Pearl, they were inseparable and married in 1980. When Sarah was born, they just thought, thought that Sarah made the sunshine, and Pearl and Gord devoted their lives to Sarah. And like so many victims of domestic violence, she was a very kind soul who defended the vulnerable and loved animals and was just very sweet and liked to help people. Just the kind of person you want around you. She left school and became a worker in a senior's home, um, and she really did love that kind of work. She was really made for it because of her kindness and compassion that she had, but it was hard on her to watch people that she enjoyed talking and listening to um, die and suffer the effects of illness or dementia. So she left that job and became an esthetician at a salon, which she also enjoyed a lot because then she could be social and meet a lot of new people. And she met and fell in love with Travis Martell, the bad boy type that didn't make a great first impression on her dad, who felt that Sarah deserved to be treated like a queen. It also didn't help that he was 12 years older than Sarah. Uh, Her parents knew this guy was no good. He was jobless, lazy, a bit of a drinker. And Sarah and him fought a lot, mostly when they both drank. I mean, this story is just so familiar. And I feel very bad for Gordon Pearl. They tried very hard to get her to see how things were going to go for her, that she could do a lot better. Um, They even tried to show her that the way that he treated his mom, which was quite bad, it's going to be the same for her. So they did that the same as we did, hoping that she's going to figure it out and leave this guy and just supporting her as best they could. And the relationship for them continued on and off, mostly on for about four years with them living together. Now, probably what Gordon Pearl didn't know about Travis and Sarah probably didn't know either was that Travis had a couple of prior convictions under his belt about nine years before for spousal assault and for uttering threats. According to Crime Beat's coverage, one night in 2008 at a house party, Sarah did kind of have it all figured out and decided to leave Travis. So she went home and she packed her belongings and was welcomed back to her parents' home with open arms. She was 24 at that time. I mean, this story is just way too similar to Taylor's. It's almost spooky. Um, And this was right around the same year that Taylor actually met Dustin. On the morning of July 2nd, 2008, Gord gave Sarah a kiss goodbye before she headed off to work for the day. And also very much like in Taylor's story, on this day, her parents were convinced that this was it. This is going to be the time that she leaves and stays away. 
but also very much like in Taylor's story, it wasn't the end. Uh, In fact, that very evening, Sarah met with Travis at a bar. Witnesses say that Travis was behaving very jealously, hovering over her. And he actually phoned her cell phone when she got up to go to the bathroom to find out where she was and what was taking so long. Huge red flag here. Now, what we don't know is why Sarah met with Travis on that night. It might have been that she wanted to make arrangements to get her stuff or because he demanded closure or whatever. Um, So we can't really make the leap that she was planning on getting back together or staying with him. Uh, And even if she did, which it does kind of sound like, we shouldn't judge her for that choice. As I've said many times, and I will continue to say, violence in intimate relationships is a very complex issue. And as Gord and Pearl and my own family found out, just telling someone that they should leave, and even when that person knows themselves that they should leave, knowing it and doing it are two very different things. When your children become adults, they say that you can stop parenting them. Well, just try that. It's not that easy. So although it's disappointing that she met with him that night at the bar and it's disappointing that she left with him and went back to his mom's place with him, coulda, woulda, shouldas don't really get us any place and they certainly don't help Sarah now or her family. So all I know is that later that night they wound up together back at Travis's mom's place. Um, Now I don't know this for sure but it sounds like they shared a place together for about four years um, paid for of course by Sarah's money and when she left she left the apartment went back to her parents' house, and then Travis went back to his mom's place. Uh, That's what it sounds like, although it could have been that Travis and Sarah lived at Travis's mom's place during their relationship. There was a report that Sarah had actually been dating a new guy named Abdul for about a month during the time that Sarah had broken up with Travis. According to this one reporting um, that I found of it, he actually testified at the trial that's going to come later. But it's strange that I only found one report that even mentions this. According to Abdul, Sarah sent him a text that night around 2.30 a.m. and asked him to come and pick her up, likely from the bar that they were at. Um, It was late, so he told her to take a cab, and she replied with what was called a profane message, probably something like Jesus Christ. Um, So it could be that she wanted to leave without Travis, but had no other ride at the time, that time of night, so she was stuck going home with him. Um, And of course, he didn't take her to her parents' house, but to his mom's place. Regardless of how or why they got to Travis's mom's, they did. And at 4.59 a.m., Travis made a call to 911 a very strange sounding call where he says in a very acty kind of voice, hello, hello, hello. I'd like to report my wife. She's dead. He said that he just got home himself and found her and that he'd been out at the club and that he just came into the bedroom. And he puts this big emphasis on that word for some reason, and that there's blood all over her, all over his fricking walls and on her and stuff. And she's not breathing. When asked by the dispatcher if he thought that she was beyond help, he said, fuck, I just want to go yell at the world. I'm just mad. I don't know what to do. My frickin' wife. When asked by the dispatcher if he could help him perform some CPR, he said, I think she's dead. She's blue. He already knew it was useless and that he didn't know how to do it. But the dispatcher kept trying to get him to at least try to do the CPR um, and that he could tell him how to do it. But he just kept stalling and saying that it's too late. There's a big stab wound right in her chest. At one point, he said, quote, it's just like really late. I just called you guys. I have to call her parents, my friends. I don't know what to do. I got blood on my freaking shirt. Um, And then when the dispatcher asked him, "Okay, you said there was a stab wound. He said, a stab wound, I think, I don't know, gunshot. I don't know, I just came in the door. 
The dispatcher was very persistent and told him that, look, the longer you leave it, the worse it's going to get. And he said, are you sure you don't want to attempt CPR? I can walk you through it. And he just said, she's blue. But he said, I think I have a pretty good idea who did whatever to whatever. We were out of the bar today. We got into a bit of a scuffle, but that wasn't it. I went off. Now he told the dispatcher that he was actually calling from the kitchen, that he had gone into the bedroom and thought that she had thrown up. Uh, she was passed out on the bed, so he put a towel down for her, and then he went to try to give her a hug and a kiss, and there was blood everywhere. And he's saying all of this in this weird, like, trying to pretend to cry voice. Like, I really wish I had the audio for you that I could play for you, because it sounds just so bizarre in it. And finally, the dispatcher says, the only thing you could possibly have done for her is some CPR, but if you don't want to do it, I can't force you. But he ignored that statement and said, we both know some illegal people which aren't great people. So, of course, this call put Travis on the radar pretty much immediately. Detective Rick Tusa brought him in for questioning. In Travis's version of events, him and Sarah had a fight, and that wasn't unusual. They did fight a lot, but always made up. So he went for a walk, and when he came home, he found her. This is such a cliche of an excuse. A man who kills his wife, he's always out on a walk when it happens. And when children are beaten to death, it's always a fall down the stairs. Murderers are just not the creative types. At one of his early police interviews, Travis told Detective Tusa that men that he owed a gambling debt to, he was sure it was them because one of them had threatened him on the phone. And hey, if I could just have my phone, I can show you this guy's cell number. The night that she was killed, two men had come up to him, come up to him at the bar where they were and threatened him, said that they were watching him. So yeah, please look at my phone. So okay, they'll look at his phone, sure. So his Sony Ericsson flip phone was sent to the text crime unit. Meanwhile, there was an autopsy done, of course. The medical examiner found that she had been stabbed with a large knife in the chest. The wound went through the ribs, her liver, her vena cava, and the aorta, and she would have died in about two minutes from the wound being inflicted. While they were having the phone examined, they did look for some leads on things, but they couldn't really find anything. And they also couldn't find the knife. And it was at this time that they tracked down some of the people at the bar that night where Sarah and Travis were before the murder. And that's when they found out that Sarah's friends didn't really like Travis and described his behavior as jealous and controlling. And so now let's go back to the phone that Travis wanted looked at so badly. If you're going to do bad things with your phone, that shit just doesn't get deleted even if you want to delete it. Tech crimes, guys, they can find all that stuff that you don't want found. And believe me, I have stuff in my Google search. I would be mortified to have someone read. I'm sure it reads like a how to get away with murder episode. I'm just saying. Travis made the video that night, the night of Sarah's murder, one that he had deleted. Or so he thought, again, just don't even bother trying to delete stuff. The video started at 3.07 a.m., two hours before he called 911. It's a two minute and six second video, but it is so chilling that it will never be aired. To a background of loud heavy metal music, Sarah is laying with her back on the bed and her legs and feet dangling off the side. The video is taken from about eight feet away from her, but in parts, Travis zooms in on her. The camera is focused on a large wound in her chest from which blood is spreading very quickly. Constable Shafik Punjay told Saltwire Network, 
This was the worst content I've had to see in 15 years of policing. Sarah is moaning and appearing like she's quickly losing consciousness. At 10 seconds in, he zooms into the wound on her chest and Travis's creepy and disgusting voice says, look at that wound you got there. And at 33 seconds in, he walks towards her to focus again on her chest and the blood coming from her. He says, straight to the sternum, right on. The fucker is mocking her in her dying moments. He then zooms on into the floor around her feet and says, pee, that's gross. As she continues to struggle for her last breath, he says, good that I said I love you. Oh, this sucks. Before finally saying, I'll be there soon enough with you, baby girl. His voice is calm and cool during all of it. Now, just a side note here. I really hope that when you kill someone so that you can be with them forever, whatever your motive is, like he says, he's going to be with her again soon enough. That's yuck. I would hope that the universe or God or whoever you believe in wouldn't do that to someone. When I'm dead, I don't want to see any of the people that wronged me. I only want to see people who loved and cared about me and that I loved and cared about. So I hope that he never gets that wish. I will be right back after these brief messages. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. So clearly this video, as awful and horrendous as it was to listen to and watch, was proof that it wasn't a gambling debt and there was no reason to keep looking for this guy's phone number. But Travis had some questions to answer. The only problem was that Travis could be heard on the video, but he couldn't be seen. Uh, I mean, I know that it's his phone and it's his voice, but the only thing that they found was that Sarah's friends confirmed that Travis used to call Sarah baby girl. So on September 8th, he was brought in again to discuss his phone. Uh, he wasn't yet aware that the police had found his little film project. Now, I've heard that this actually happened on September 30th, but the court documents state it was September 8th. Based on the fact that Travis is arrested on October 1st, it was probably the second interview took place on the 8th. 
uh, because court documents are proofread pretty well for accuracy. And sometimes there is paperwork and other things that happen between the interviews and the actual arrest. So I can't give you the exact timeline and I don't want to speculate. I don't think that it's a particularly important part to the story, but you know, I like to be accurate about this stuff if I can. They started the interview by telling him that they couldn't verify his story. The timeline didn't match up around the time that he'd called 911, which was two hours after she'd died based on the medical examiner's examination. Um, They didn't mention the video. So finally, after not getting any new answers, he said, let's watch this DVD. So he remained silent while they played the two-minute video. Travis then lit a cigarette and sat in silence for a little bit before finally telling him that when they got home, they had gotten into a fight. He says that he saw Sarah on the phone with another man and he grabbed the phone away from her. She then jumped on his back and he pushed her off onto the bed. She then grabbed the knife that Travis always keeps by his nightstand table, you know, just in case. They struggled together and he pushed her down and the knife kind of went into her into her sternum. Uh, he said he just flipped out. Then he got cold feet, used the knife to splatter blood on the walls and ceilings to make it look like someone had attacked her and struggled with her before hiding his shirt, which was bloody and the knife up in the attic um, in a couple of different locations up there, which would be hard for someone to get to. They then decided that they needed a little bit more information to go on. So they decided to give him a chance to phone a friend. Uh, And of course, this call was recorded. He called his buddy, Jason Bobak. Now, I only know bits and pieces of this call, but the important parts are quotes from Travis saying, it was all my fault. I was going to kill myself that night that it happened because I just panicked. I tried to hide it. We weren't fist fighting, but it was darn close. It turned into a wrestling match. The knife was beside the bed. She picked it up first and then it ended up inside her. Uh, So now he's gone from being not there at all to just walking in on a crime scene to being there. Uh, But now it's self-defense or an accident or what have you. And this isn't sitting well with investigators because they just can't get the irrefutable evidence that was um, that it was him behind the camera. And although you and I would argue, even if he did struggle with her, why would you film it and mock her after it had happened if you didn't intend for her to die? And why wait so long to call 911? So it was clearly intentional. Um, But juries are sticklers for reasonable doubt. And sometimes they take that to extremes. So they aren't quite ready to put their money on a conviction just yet. So they asked him to do this reenactment for him. And he agrees. I'm sure he's thinking, whew, they're buying it. I just have to show them a struggle. So he does this very elaborate act for them where he remembers that he grabbed Sarah by the wrist and then tripped over her purse. When he does that, she fell backwards and the knife, which remember he said that she had already grabbed, so it was in her hand, went into her stomach and then blood spurted everywhere. Oh my God, it was horrible. Crocodile tears ensue, etc. Only this demonstration of the angle at which the knife entered Sarah's body didn't come close to matching what the forensic evidence had showed. And to make him look even worse, her injuries were mostly internal. And as shown on the video that he so nicely took, there was no spurting. So with that, Travis was arrested and charged with Sarah's murder. At the trial, the Crown prosecutor, who was Gord Wong, his argument was that this was an intentional murder. Quote, the powerful nature of the video is that It was moments after the act itself from the content you can glean intent. From the time he had the cell phone in his hand, it was his choice. Call 911 or not. In choosing not to call 911, the natural consequences of the act is that she'll die. 
He makes a choice instead to record her final moments. The fact that he chose to make the video is that he wants her dead. Within 12 minutes of completing the 2 minute 6 second video, Martel began his series of lies when he phoned best friend Jason Bobak and left a message saying that he got home from the bar okay, everything was fine, he'd talk to him in the morning. The accused only changed his story from not being at the home at the time of the stabbing to the incident being an accident after he was confronted with the gruesome video. The time he begins to make any admissions after is after he saw the video and then says he pushed her down and the knife goes into her. He's admitting to force moments before the stabbing. He has the knife, the location, depth and force required to go through bone and cause injury. This is not the arm, but through the center of the chest, causing serious injury, and he has reckless whether death ensues. On the other hand, Travis's lawyer, Balfour Durr, whom we have heard from on other cases here in Calgary, he felt that he should be acquitted because he was just defending himself. In his opinion, this was manslaughter or even just criminal negligence for the fact that he didn't call 911 right away and refused to attempt CPR. Poor Travis only recorded the video so that anyone watching would see that it was an accident and that he planned on dying by suicide. Quote, the fact that he says in the video, it was a good thing I said I love you and I'll be joining her soon, supports what Travis Martell says why he made the video to create his rec- this record and then kill himself. He looks at the situation that she's going to die. He's in shock, feels that he'll be held responsible when in law he is not. He's going to kill himself and then chickens out. Now, Balfour never mentioned why he decided to mock her injuries in this video. He also claimed that he had been intoxicated with alcohol and cocaine at the time. Now, I couldn't tell by the reasons for the sentencing and appeal documents if this was a trial by by jury or by judge alone, Um, but the judge in the case did come to the conclusion that this was an act of jealousy, which he based on the witnesses that described his behavior at the bar as hovering. Uh, I mean, calling your girlfriend in the bathroom to make sure she's where she at. That's kind of got jealousy written all over it. The judge also came to the conclusion that there was definitely intent to murder Sarah, citing that using a large knife would naturally lead to death, and any reasonable person would know that. His behavior was reckless whether Sarah had died or not. As for the intoxication argument, he found that he was sober enough to use his cell phone to videotape Sarah's last moments uh, and then to delete it afterwards and walk the... Uh, kind of sketchy joists that were in the attic to be able to hide the knife in his shirt. During this sentencing hearing, Travis made an apology to his own family and the police, but no mention of Sarah's family or to Sarah herself. Sarah's dad, Gordon, said that he would never forgive him anyways. This His apology, for what it's worth, was emotionless. Actually, it meant nothing to me. I don't think it was a sincere apology at all. Um, The appeal judge actually mentioned his apology and how he worded it in his appeal document saying, quote, we do observe that no mention was made in the sentencing decision of Mr. Martell's limited remorse for the victims, demonstrated by the manner of his apology. By apologizing only to his own family and to the police and in making ambivalent statements of regret to the victim's family, but not saying Uh, anything in relation to the victim herself, it appears that he continued to believe that the loss was not significant and that he showed no true remorse for causing her death. This does not mean that we conclude Mr. Martell is without remorse simply because he defended himself at trial, 
but rather that in fashioning his apologies as he did, he highlighted his continuing lack of concern for the fact that he had caused the victim herself to lose her life. Mr. Martel's moral blameworthiness is as a result high. Uh, obviously, he was convicted second degree in this case and was given a life sentence with no parole for 12 years as this um, at this original sentencing hearing. Uh, but of course, he appealed. And in July 2011, his appeal was heard and he didn't get the acquittal that he was hoping for or a new trial. But he did get the parole ineligibility raised from 12 years to 15 Quote, the absence of mitigating factors means that there is nothing to offset these various aggravating factors. Some of the circumstances involved in the cases which were produced were admittedly more serious than in relation to the one under appeal. Here, Mr. Martel's conduct in recording the death and attempting to hide his culpability elevates this case beyond the lower end of the range. Mr. Martel's conduct in attempting to hide his culpability not only elevates the proper range of parole and eligibility beyond that which would apply if one looked at the stabbing alone, but was sufficiently significant to elevate it beyond 12 years, considering first the character of the offender as bearing high moral blameworthiness, second the nature of the offense as being spousal homicide, and third, the cold-blooded protracted attempt to hide the circumstances surrounding it, surrounding its commission, we conclude that the 12-year parole period of parole and eligibility is unfit. We allow the appeal and substitute a period of 15 years parole and eligibility. Sometimes appeals are good for the community as a whole. And that was the murder of Sarah Ray. I am horrified for Sarah's family that they had to endure watching this video. Uh, how you can film that and then mock somebody like that just sickens me. It absolutely sickens me. And the fact that he once loved her and she loved him, like, I just can't sometimes. What an absolute, like, there's not even a comparison. You can't call him a pig. Pigs are better than that. He's just so gross. Like, his very character as a human is just gross. And I hope that he rots in prison. And with that, I'm going to be back again next week with another gross person doing gross things. In the meantime, do your blah, blah, blah stuff. Oh, and I'm now on YouTube. Um, well, not like videos of me, but like the podcast. Um, I have like very little subscribers and it's really embarrassing. So if you go and subscribe, even if you don't listen there, just to, so I don't feel so lonely over there. And as always, thank you so much for listening. I'm not even